If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the last chapter of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some Bibles available on the back table or on that back cart that you could use to follow along. Would love for those of you who have a copy to follow along as we kind of will keep going back and pointing out things. My intent every time I come to preach to you is not just to read this and then close it and kind of tell you what I think, but to hopefully continue to go back to the Word and tell you what I think the Lord is saying to us this morning. So keep your Bibles open if you would. This morning we've come to the end. We've come to the end, and I say that phrase in, in a couple different ways. First of all, after 16 weeks in our study of this book, a study that began way back in August of 2022, we've come to the end of our study of this book. And I realize that some of you haven't been here for the past five, six months. You're just getting the very last of a long Journey. This was a book written some 2,500 years ago by a Jewish man named Zechariah to an ethnic people, to his people, to the nation of Israel, to encourage them in their plight. A plight that in this season of their lives together was rebuilding after years of being sent away from their homeland into exile. Now they're back and they're trying to again create a life for themselves as God's people. And yet, these words have come to us here today, preserved all these many years by the Holy Spirit, and they're meaningful to us. They're not just ancient words written 2,500 years ago to an ethnic people, but by faith in Jesus, these promises and these words come to our hearts, and they are for us as well. While our specific circumstances are, of course, incredibly different, our struggles, our fears, and our needs are much the same as God's people's throughout the centuries, throughout the generations. So that's the first ending that we come today to, is the end of the book. But there's another ending that we come to today as we end the book, and that is the end of everything. What I mean by that is the end of the world. For all the encouragements that we've received and we've unpacked about God's presence, the certainty of His promises, His desire and love to use the small things to exalt Himself, the exhortation to the church, to the people of God to let your hands be strong in the midst of the journey, all of those exhortations that we've looked at over the weeks and the months, they all culminate here in chapter 14 to literally the end of the story. This is a compelling vision that we find here today that God communicates to His people that He will finish what He has started. But there's a catch. And the catch is, this is not an easy passage. In fact, this is what the 16th century theologian, little-known guy by the name of Martin Luther, this is what he said about this chapter. And I quote, Here in this chapter, I give up. For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. Well, okay then, let's dive in. And see if we can figure it out. 
There, there's no doubt that this is a challenging passage. I mean, part of the challenge for us in understanding this is what should we think about these things in terms of when are these things taking place? We've talked about this a bit already, but before I even read the passage this morning, I want to talk at, about it just briefly. This is kind of a lengthy introduction. You see, how we come at this passage, how you receive this passage as I read it, is largely determined by bigger theological concepts and by how we, how you, interpret apocalyptic literature. And of course, the easiest example of interpreting apocalyptic literature is like the book of Revelation, right? And so there are three essential options when we come at a passage like this. One is we could view everything that the prophet is saying as absolutely literal. So cities and people and places and actions, they're all described as they are going to literally take place. Now that kind of interpretive grid has problems because this kind of literature, the book of Revelation and a chapter like this, is rife with vivid imagery. And we've seen some of it earlier in the book that we've studied. So I don't think we should take this all literal. And that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. That's not what I mean by literal. It is going to happen, but I mean it's not going to happen explicitly as it says it's going to happen in terms of the imagery, in terms of the people and places. Well, then the other way to think about it, the second option is that it's all figurative, right? So everything represents something else. So when Zechariah was saying this stuff, he wasn't meaning anything that he was saying in the sense of people, places, that it was all representative of something else, a future reality. Well, there's an issue to this as well, because as we've seen in our study of the book of Zechariah, specifically in chapter 9, there's some pretty obvious historical, literal fulfillment of some of his prophecy. Remember when we studied chapter 9, we traced Alexander the Great and his conquest as he came down and basically did what was described by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. Nine, And so really, I think the right interpretive grid for us to come at this passage, and the way that I'm coming at this passage, is the third way, and it's somewhere between those two. It's not absolutely literal, nor is it absolutely figurative. And this is historically how we've understood Revelation. That's a study for another time. But I think that's how we ought to understand what we're about to hear I mean, I hope you'll see that some of the things that you hear, the literal fulfillments of them don't make sense this side of the cross. What I mean by that is the writer of the Hebrews was pretty clear that now that Jesus has come, he's better than everything that has gone before. And so all that stuff has been fulfilled and trumped by Jesus. So while I think there is some literal fulfillment described here, there's also much that is pictured, and we're going to try to decipher and work our way through the passage. I mean, really, this fits this already not yet paradigm that I've been talking about, this theological concept of the fact that the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, and yet the kingdom is still to come. One more thing before I read the text. Does that mean that God did not really do what He said He was going to do in regards to these words first coming on the ears of these 6th century people? 
No, I think the way we ought to understand it is that God is using familiar forms to signify future realities. And so he's using realities that will far surpass their understanding, right? We're in the 6th century B.C. Here's how one commentator, I think, helpfully describes it. So imagine you are a father in the year 1900, and you tell your 10-year-old boy that when he turns 30, you are going to buy him his very own horse and buggy. Pretty awesome. But then by the time he turns 30, 1920, the Ford Model T has come out. And so the dad decides, I'm going to buy him a car instead. Would we say that the promise to the son wasn't fulfilled? No, it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in a way that the son couldn't even imagine at the time, but in a way much, much better. And so I think that's how we understand these words first falling on those hearers long ago and how we now in the new covenant years later have a, I've said this before, a privileged vantage point to look at these passages and to see them in fullness. So with that lengthy introduction, let's listen. Zechariah chapter 14, as is our custom, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word if you would. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Listen as I read. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security." 
And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised up against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. All the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations shall come against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts." On that day. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin our time together this morning with a simple question Where is life headed? Depending on your stage of life, this question hits in different ways. For instance, for you young people, some of you are trying to figure this out. Right? Where is your life headed? I know I've had some conversations with some of my kids recently about the trajectory of their lives. Certain decisions that you make today will affect you for the rest of your lives. And then we can all take a step back, as we've done at different times in this study, and we can ask, where is all of this headed? Right? The rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, births and deaths and all the tragedies in between. What is it all for? Well, this passage doesn't answer every question, but it does remind us what, or rather we should say who, is at the center of our stories. Because He is the story. I've sought to distill this passage into three wonderful realities for our hearts to dwell on for the next few moments. We are not going to come close to uncovering every stone in Zechariah chapter 14, but I hope this will be helpful. The first reality is this. Jesus comes to deliver us from our enemies. Jesus comes to deliver us from our enemies. We're going to see this in the first five verses. We're going to see this in verses 12 through 15. Let me just say a couple things about the points that I'm going to make because they're all going to sound familiar. 
First of all, they're all going to have the name Jesus in them. And you're saying, Jesus, he's not mentioned in this passage, Pastor. He's not mentioned once. But he actually is. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And he is not only involved in the works of Yahweh as we see here as part of the Godhead, as part of the Trinity, but as I hope to show you, as I hope we'll see, he is the means to accomplish these things. He's the tip of God's spear. And the second thing is the tense that I'm using for these points, these realities. Jesus comes. We say, well, Jesus has come, right? He has come. Yes, he has come. Oh, Jesus will come, right? Yes, Jesus will come. But I'm very intentionally saying Jesus comes because I'm seeking to make sure that we don't leave behind and seeking to capture this already and not yet. These realities that I'm about to proclaim to you are not distantly past. They're not distantly future. They are for us today. They are for you on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday night. So let's jump into the passage and try to unpack a little bit of what the prophet is saying. It's a passage that begins not with our deliverance, but our need for it, right? I mean, a horrible day is described in these first few verses. A day of deep trauma, a day of disaster, a day that the previous generation, as they're listening to these words, they remember some of this. They had experienced this to an extent, as they were uprooted from their homes and carried off into exile. And now the prophet is saying stuff like it again. And we ask ourselves, why did they experience this? We've talked about this before as well. Why did God's people experience this? Why is it part of their future again? Well, the simple answer is because of their sin. Because of their rebellion. I mean, let me just note and stop for a second and recognize that this is a natural place for us to again question God's actions, right? This is a calamity that he seems to be sovereignly bringing about. But as those questions arise in your mind, I want to remind us of the reality of the ugliness of our sin, Not just the ugliness of our sin, but the holiness of Yahweh. What is described here in these first few verses is absolutely awful. But it's the result of an even worse offense against a God who burns with white-hot purity and righteousness. Sin must be punished. And we see glimpses and the consequences of it here again. But that's not really the focus of the passage. Now, the focus here is on Yahweh's deliverance, right? Last week, we spoke about the Lord's jealousy to preserve a people, and here we're seeing some of that jealousy in action. 
The warrior God is coming out on behalf of his people. The first thing he does is he makes this demonstrative stand in the east. Verse 4, you see it there. And we say, well, why is he making this stand in the east? Well, because this is where he departed when he removed his presence from the Lord's people at the exile. Listen to Ezekiel 11.23, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Well, now he's returning in the same way that he left. And he's returning in power and in majesty. In fact, he's splitting a valley open. As he returns, that's the picture that's given. There was a line of hills in the topography of Israel running north to south on the eastern border of Israel. And now those hills have been separated. There is a pathway. It's both a way of escape and it's also a way of conquest. And then the second thing he does is he unleashes warfare in defense of his people. We see this really starting full on in verse 12. This is worse than chemical warfare. This is internal biology, right? This is a plague that the Lord sends on the enemies of God's people that ravages the body, that ravages the bodies of their animals, their livelihood, their war machines. Not just that, but he produces internal conflicts where they're raising the sword against one another and fighting each other. And this results in massive plunder. And God's people receiving massive amounts of wealth from their enemies. Again, this is the just punishment of Yahweh upon His enemies. My question is, does it sound at all familiar? Is there anything that rings true in the experience of God's people, these categories. A miraculous parting to create a way of escape. Plagues to bring the enemy to their knees. Plundering of their enemy for no apparent reason. Sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? And I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, the Exodus stood and will forever stand at the center of God's story of redemption. It was a significant event in the life of God's people, a story that was told and passed down generation upon generation. And now Zechariah seems to be checking all those boxes as he is saying that a new Exodus is coming. One that is bigger, one that is better than you can even imagine one inaugurated and finished by Jesus because Jesus comes to deliver us from our enemies. And indeed, throughout the New Testament, we find evidence as Jesus is spoken of, as His words and His actions display, that He is the final prophet. He is the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18. He is the new Moses coming to lead a people, to protect them, to deliver them from their enemies. Mark 11, verse 1, right before the triumphal entry. Now when they, that is Jesus and His disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, 
at the Mount of Olives. See, Jesus' path began at the Mount of Olives and was a path that led to the cross where our greatest enemy was defeated. No more slavery to sin. Only the promised land awaits. And so when we come to this passage, we can't not think of the one who has come to deliver us, the one who has delivered us, the one who will deliver us still. But it's not just the motif of Exodus that we find in the passage, it's also the motif of creation. And that's the second reality, is that Jesus comes to transform the world. Here I'm focusing on verses 6 through 11. The prophet describes here this incredible imagery where the Lord comes and turns the natural order upside down. Right? All the normal rhythms of our lives will be disrupted, but it will, they will all be disrupted for the better. And it begins in verse 6 with light. Now verse 6 contains some difficult Hebrew. You can see the difficulty expressed if you have an ESV in the footnotes there in your Bibles that explains at the bottom the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Well, that's super helpful. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I did a little study. The ESV has chosen to translate it, no light, cold, or frost, but others have translated that phrase, the bright ones will be congealed. Kind of a weird phrase, very different than cold or frost. But I think it fits because what the prophet is saying is that the stars, the sun, the moon, the bright ones where we get our light will no longer be needed on this day. On this day of deliverance, on this day of transformation, on this day of triumph. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this in Isaiah 60, verse 19. He says, The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And then Revelation chapter 21, John writes this, And the city... What city? The new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. That's an incredible transformation that's coming at the end of all things. But even beyond the glory to be revealed at the end, Jesus has come already. And He's transforming this world by His light. Right? John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His light was His mission. And it has become our mission as well. To a people walking in figurative darkness, we shine the light of Christ that they might see, that they might glorify our Father in heaven. It's part of the transforming of the world that Jesus has come to do. 
But then there's also this description of water in verse 8. We've spoken already about the fountain last week, a fountain of cleansing, a fountain of life. And here it's living waters that flow from Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling, the place of His presence. And from those waters, the surrounding area finds life. Couldn't help but think of John 7. On the last day of the feast... The Feast of Booths, to be exact. We'll get to that in a moment. On the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, ultimately it is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life who extends that life to those who look to Him in faith. And He says, come, drink from Me. Now and forevermore, I am the ever-giving source. Jesus comes to transform the world. And then finally, the last image we find in these verses is safety. Verses 10 and 11 The prophet, using familiar topography, declares that Jerusalem will rise above the surrounding terrain. And as a result, she is safe. Her people will dwell in safety. And of course, this is the promise of eternal security that is ours as God's people. No more fear, no more tears. But it also ties into the church, doesn't it? The new Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling here with His people. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, there'll come a time when you need not worship God on this mount. So what does it all mean? Well, it means future hope. I think first of all, Jesus will transform the world fully and finally at the end of all things. But then it also means present peace and present purpose. He comes to transform the world now through us. This is His mission. And this is our mission, the church's mission. Our message in our lives are to be a sneak peek of what is to come in this creation motif of this second reality You and I, according to 2 Corinthians 5, are what? We ourselves are new creations. Being transformed into His likeness. And as Paul says in just a few verses later, transformed to be ambassadors. Well, that brings us to the final reality in verses 16 through 21. And it's simply this. Jesus comes to take His rightful place. I mean, ultimately, this is a passage about ruling and reigning forevermore. A river streams out of the city, but the nations stream to it. Verse 16. Why do they come to the city, to the dwelling place of God? They come to celebrate. They come to give honor. And I don't believe that what Zechariah is saying is that the end of all things, that 
The sacrifices will be reinstated. Again, the prophet is using old forms to describe future realities. But we will, as the writer of the Hebrews says, we will offer sacrifices of praise. We will, as Paul told the Romans, offer our lives as living sacrifices. And that's what we're doing here today as the church, as the place of God's dwelling. You'll notice that the Feast of Booze is mentioned here quite a bit. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a celebration of Yahweh's deliverance and His presence with them. And it's that presence that is extolled and promised here. God will finally and fully dwell with His people, even as He dwells with us here. Verse 21, no more traitors in the temple. Now we can take that in a couple different ways. We can take that as merchants, you know, the kind of merchants that Jesus drove out of the temple in disgust. Or you can translate it in a different way. You can translate it as no more Canaanites, meaning no more idolaters. The Canaanites were the epitome of idolatry in the ancient world. No more rivals. In fact, everything is set apart for God. Everything, it says in these verses, is holy. And that is because Jesus has taken His rightful place. A rightful place of ruling and reigning. Brothers and sisters, this is where life is headed. It's where all of life is headed. And so the first question as we think about why this matters to us this morning is, are you on the right side of history? I mean, that's the pivotal, fundamental question Are you on the right side of history as Jesus takes His rightful place in the world? If you're not, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to acknowledge what one day every knee and every tongue will acknowledge. That Jesus is Lord. But then if you are, which I know many of you, most of you, maybe all of you in this room are, rejoice. Deliverance, transformation, rule. This has come and it is coming in fullness. And for us, as we receive these words as the church, we can't help but think about our task, our mission Growing in grace, pursuing holiness, dispensing grace to those around us. You see, Jesus has come to take his rightful place in our lives that he in turn might take his rightful place in the lives of our neighbors and eventually in the life of the world. A new day has dawned, and a new dawn is coming. My prayer this morning is that we will have the grace to live in the newness and to long for that newness that is still to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word from Your servant, Zechariah. We admit it is hard to understand. It is confusing. There's still much to know. There's still much to be revealed. 
But Father, the things that I have proclaimed this morning are certain. Jesus comes to deliver us. Jesus comes to transform this world. And Jesus comes to take His rightful place. In these realities, we rejoice and we ask humbly, Lord Jesus, that You would use us, our lives, as living sacrifices to further extol these things to a watching world. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us, we pray, in our weakness, in our need. In Jesus' name, amen.